Hello and welcome to Planet Watch. Big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, solar energy. The sun can provide clean energy and can save you money. Find out from a solar expert how he won a solar car race with a vehicle he built. How he taught solar installation to thousands and why solar energy is here to stay. We'll talk with North Carolina-based inventor and energy consultant Jack Martin about his inventions, innovations, and vision for the future. We'll also hear from our affiliate station director, Eugene Beer, who is here all the way from Columbus, Ohio. We'll be visiting with our affiliate directors and saying hello to those folks in Columbus today. Right here from your hosts of Planet Watch. We also want to invite you to participate in the program via email and Facebook. You can email us your questions about solar energy or anything alternative energy at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's all one word, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We can also be found on Facebook. If you look up Planet Watch Radio, you will find our page. That's where we're streaming live. You can see us. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. And you can give us questions that way as well. We have three interns from Cabrillo College's broadcast journalism program, and they're going to give some news about the environment to us before we go to our interview with our guests. So let's kick it off with something from Cade Pastelnik, who's going to tell us a little bit about um, an interesting study that linked uh, global warming with income disparity. Very interesting study that's just come out. A new study finds that unmitigated climate change will cause the income inequality gap in the United States to widen. Research suggests that if emissions growth is not slowed, the anticipated temperature increase of 6 to 8 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century will have an economic impact on par with the Great Recession. Based on the data, for each increase in 1 degrees Fahrenheit, the U.S. economy will lose 0.7% of its GDP. The states located in the south and midwest regions are projected to suffer the most due to their already hot temperatures and poor communities. Solomon Hassang, a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, claims that at this rate, the nation is on pace for the largest transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich in the country's history. The Midwest is expected to have agricultural losses comparable to those during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. The Gulf Coast will also be hit as well. Robert Kopp, director of the Institute of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences, says the Gulf Coast's exposure to sea level rise and severe hurricanes places the residents in danger of increased crime rates, inefficient work production, and rising air conditioning costs. And that's Cade Pastelnik, one of our interns. Caroline King has another story for us, keeping us up on what's happening around the world as well as around the United States. Yeah, and these facts are from newswise.com. Uh, researchers from UC Irvine have recently discovered how industrial farming is disrupting the natural burn and regrowth cycles of grasslands in Asia, Africa, Central, and South America. Growing populations call for more food, resulting in sharp increases in the number of livestock and expansion of croplands into parts of the earth that used to be wild grasslands and home to many endangered species. In addition, new buildings and roads are replacing areas once covered by savannas. Regular fires once burned through these open areas to help maintain healthy grasslands by purifying and fertilizing the areas in ancient natural cycles. Data from 1998 to 2015 collected by NASA satellites shows that the total areas being burned by natural fires has decreased by 25% or a loss of 1.2 million square kilometers. Interesting stuff there. And um, not to completely bum you out by all these stories, um, let's go to Joe's and then we'll have Tommy's last. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> mine's another kind of gloom and doom category item. Uh, it's really short. Uh, Palm Springs. Hey, it's almost always hot down in Palm Springs, you know, down in the desert in Southern California. But hey, a couple days ago, took the cake. The mercury, I guess if they still do <laughs> temperatures that way, it hit 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which was a long-term record. So, you know, just another, uh, well, I don't want to say nail in the coffin of <laughs> climate denial. But, uh, I mean, it's yet more evidence that things are inching upward in a direction that is not a real pretty picture. So there you go. There's that one data point. Thank you. 
And uh, but there's some good news from. <laughs> yeah, it's not all bad. Don't worry. Um, my, my story is about uh, automakers and. Volvo Cars has become the first automaker to leave the internal combustion engine in the dust, stating that all new vehicles will be either hybrid or all-electric by 2019. While most of the major automakers have had hybrid and battery-powered options for several years, starting with the Toyota Prius in 1997, none have made this bold move to ditch the solely gasoline engine. Instead, many automakers have continued to pump out SUVs and pickup trucks as gas prices fall. This pioneering move was met with mixed reactions as automakers saw the fourth straight month of falling sales. Okay, I knew there was a reason I was a Volvo uh, aspirant, <laughs> and we'll get their first electric vehicle soon. Thank you, all of you, for the information, and welcome to Planet Watch. We have a really interesting couple of folks in studio with us, and uh, Joe's going to help me introduce them in just a minute, but I... I did read up on our one guest, Jack Martin, found that he's a man of many skills and talents, as well as uh, interesting things he's into. He is not only director of programs at the Handy Village Institute, where the focus is on sharing practical skills about material culture and thereby building a more resilient community. He's also a senior developer at Fab Lab Hackerspace and Forge, and is part of that maker culture, which promotes learning through doing and informal networked peer-led shared learning motivation by fun and self-fulfillment. So if you're one of those maker people, you know that if you get a bunch of people with a bunch of tools in a lab together and say, make stuff and make it together and share ideas, um, real things get invented. And one of the things, if I'm not incorrect, you invented was a solar car that then won a solar car race. So we're going to talk mostly about solar energy today. And um, in a moment, Everybody's we'll hear a song. Here we go. Everybody sing along. Everybody's doing the solar energy shout. Solar energy. energy. We can't do it all day because we never, never will run out. Solar energy. Oh, it scares that cold, it dirties the air. Solar energy. The nuclear waste is a chance we better not dare. Solar energy. So now is the hour, solar power is everywhere. Solar energy. Everybody's doing the solar energy shout. Solar energy. Everybody's doing the solar energy. So there you have it. Not everybody, but we're hoping everybody will soon. <laughs> so welcome, Jack, and also welcome Eugene Beer from Columbus, Ohio, one of our affiliate Green Networks. We are so excited to have you on board. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, I got a quick question. Uh, that forge that you mentioned in connection with Jack Martin here, uh, that's not Pigeon Forge, is it? And, you know, near Dollywood in, uh, what, Tennessee, North Carolina, in the Smokies? No, it, it has a connotation of the forge where you, you know, weld metals by pounding them together. Okay, all right. So we can have people pound ideas together and come <laughs> up with new things. Cool. And, Eugene, you run the Green Radio Network, of which we're very proud to be a part. Uh, tell us what that is. It's a set of stations, low-power FM community stations in Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, WCRS, and a translator, W252AY. And we cover 1.5 million people in central Ohio. A big shout-out to our listeners in Ohio. Thank you for being part of Planet Watch and putting us on the air there. We're really thrilled to be broadcasting outside of California. And it looks like uh, through the help of our friend Jack here, we might be getting into Raleigh, North Carolina. Very exciting news. And uh, we're being considered right now at Point Ray Station. So anywhere we can get, if you're listening, you want to share uh, another station, share us with another audience, get in touch with us here at Planet Watch Radio. By the way, I should just introduce Eugene a little bit. Uh, I know him from, I've known him for two-thirds of my life. We met in uh, physics class in our freshman year at Oberlin College in Ohio, which, by the way, was the world's first co-educational college, the first to admit blacks, et cetera, et cetera, real progressive institution. And um, anyway, he's uh, an expert on uh, all things electronics and worked for years in the telecommunications field and... Uh, I think he was kind of one of the original phone freaks, too. But anyway, if you ever heard of those way back in the 60s. If you haven't, you should tell what that is. <laughs> is it illegal? Uh, no, no. Okay, it's not. there we go. <laughs> uh, say pirate radio, but for phone. <laughs> okay, say no more, say no more. So, Jack, let's uh, let's have a primer on, on solar energy right now. You teach it, you do it, you actually make things. 
how are we doing? Uh, you know, we get so excited because it's working for some people. We just interviewed a guy, I went with you, um, who's got an entirely off the grid house. Mm -hmm. And I just thought everyone should do this, um, but everyone isn't. So how far are we? What percentage in the United States anyway are it's, we? It's doubling so quickly. It's very difficult to tell you how much. We know we've passed 2% and a doubling in a year would give us 4%. Uh, that's pretty substantial. Uh, roughly 4% oh, of our material is, of our, our energy is renewed every three years because it has a 30-year lifetime. And the majority of that is now renewables and 50% of that is solar. So if you look at like uh, you do with a cell phone, we've known we've had cell phones for sale for, what, 30 years? And it was only about eight years ago that they made up half of the phones in the country. So what's being sold right now is renewable. It's primarily solar. And, uh, you know, you give it a build-out time just at today's rates. It's going to build out in about uh, 20 years to where it's, you know, all solar. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get that far, but uh, the real key is it's doubling quicker than that. So uh, for our statements on the Home Power Hour, we've been saying that uh, solar is going to become the dominant uh, energy producer in the world within 10 years. That's because really good news for the climate. So quick. That's great. And is what's driving that? Um, well, number one is the price has just dropped and the availability has dropped. Um, I'm 60 years old. Uh, solar was first started 60 years ago. It was a one in two billion chance you would see it. Uh, it took 26 doubling times to get to where it was 1% of our energy. And from 1% to 100% is seven more doubling times. So a lot of people say when you reach 1% uh, market penetration, you are the dominant player. And so uh, what's happened is solar is dominating. People just don't know it yet. <laughs> so um, I come from a state where we're putting lots and lots of solar farms in. And uh, we're right behind California, although we have only one-eighth of the population that you do. Uh, we're just the utilities are putting it in. We really need it so people can put it on their roofs, et cetera. So there's a lot of battles to be fought, but uh, the war's been won. Well, that's really good news. And because we're all about solutions, I, I love to hear that news. Just, uh, just a second ago, uh, Jack, you said the price has dropped and the availability has dropped. I think you meant the availability has gone way up. Gone way up, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so is that mostly, um, you said people need to put it on their homes. Which is going faster, home use or um, everybody use, you know, for centralized power Utility plant? right now, as far as the, as the mass, is, is the quickest growing and the most dominating. Uh, by far, but um, and what are the implications of the differences? I mean, one is there's a power company that's putting it in and selling it to you, right? And right. the other is you're selling it back to them. Well, it's your bill. Um, <laughs> when you get your electric bill right now, uh, at least ours will have all types of charges put on it, from meter charges to damage from storms to damage that they've done to themselves because they let a coal ash pond escape and pollute and now they have to pay the fines for it. Uh, that they did something illegal in California. Um, Duke Power had a power plant and Duke Energy, their engineering firm said, we don't know how to operate it. So during the 2001 energy crisis in California, uh, Duke shut down five of their plants here and they raised the rates. And uh, of course they got sued successfully, but our people in North Carolina got to pay that bill. So if you look at your bill, it's, you've got a lot of things on there that are not related. And, uh, you know, we say that renewable power is free, the wind, the sun. Uh, some of the coal companies and nuclear power companies are saying, oh, our energy is free too. But there's the building, the maintenance, and the power delivery. But the fuel is free. So it's akin to uh, going to a bar for a cover charge and then your drinks. Uh, you can go to some places, pay an exorbitant cover uh, bill and have free drinks, right? Yeah. So they're starting to say that, trying to match it. But the overall price has come uh, dramatically down. And so, what are we talking for a household? Like, just for example, if I have a three-bedroom house in California and I want to get completely onto solar, what's the average cost right now for that? I would not dare go after that <laughs> for a very simple reason that uh -huh. people have different uh, utilization right. rates of energy. Could you uh, give me a range? Like, yeah, um, if you if you know, we have some people that are, are going somewhere between uh, ten to twenty-five thousand dollars 
in uh, doing that. But there are places where you can go and get education. So uh, I teach at a community college. And one of the major things I do the first day is I say, uh, if you listen carefully on the first day, you'll earn every penny back that you paid for this course. And what we cover is efficiency. And it doesn't matter if you have solar or if you have utility power. If you become more efficient, you're using a lot less of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can get that down. I dropped uh, with efficiency the use of electricity in my home by 75%. <laughs> However, wow. my price didn't, the, what I paid didn't go down that much uh, because part of my bill was set charges that won't change no matter what you do. It's like your phone bill. You can do no long distance and still get the same $35, 40, right. $40 phone bill. Uh, and what's going on in Raleigh, Eugene? You um, you have this green radio network. You obviously chose to focus on the environment. Is solar a happening thing in Columbus? It is. You know, we formed a com- um, community-based or a neighborhood-based uh, solar group called the Clintonville Energy Collaborative. And uh, our goal at the beginning three years ago was to have one solar house um, on every block in Clintonville, which is a part of Columbus. Well, we d- we did four installations in the sort of the spirit of Amish barn raising, where we would learn how to do it as individuals, the installation, and help each other on a big Saturday and Sunday afternoon. And we did four installations, and we're very very proud of it. Uh, we've got a ways to go to get one on every block, obviously. But part of what we do is education, educating people how to do the permitting process with the utility and with the city of Columbus, and then how to buy the equipment and how to actually do the installation. Well, I know for myself, the, the big kicker was the, the rebates. It brought the price way down. Um, Joe, are we still getting those in California? Yeah, Just- yeah. They're, they're structured so that they're going to go away. The whole idea of them is to give this fledgling industry a fair start against the frankly rigged market that's been long rigged in favor of the you know cheap and dirty stuff and so those rebates are eventually going to be phased out um, two things I wanted to mention one reason why these folks are here is there's a great big international solar conference this coming week in San Francisco and you can probably still go look up intersolar it's just called intersolar and um, Well, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, to repeat, which we try to do several times each week, uh, that you can contact us, our guests, uh, at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. So let's talk more about that conference. Obviously, solar becoming a bigger and bigger deal, bigger part of the equation of how we're going to save the planet. Um, What do you think is going to be the difference this year in this conference as things keep heating up in the solar industry. Well, Rachel, um, one of the big things that will be discussed and addressed at this conference is that many of the states, um, in the United States at least, are getting away from uh, net metering where you can sell all of your excess solar back to the grid at the same price that you would buy it for. And Jack, maybe you know about this too, but um, utilities don't like that because they can make more money if they don't pay us back at that same rate. Um, so many states are passing laws to make it not so favorable for residential solar in that way. Uh, but th- there are other ways to uh, minimize or to maximize the effect for the solar owner uh, on the home basis. And that's what they'll talk about at this conference. The other part of this conference is the energy storage systems. Has, this will be their third year there. And they're being driven by people who are having to do net metering, and it's being curtailed. It's being brought back. Um, So they want to have their own energy storage. So uh, a very large portion of this will be talking about home storage, which in 2009 cost over $2,000 a kilowatt hour for storage. You're talking Um, about batteries, right? Batteries. Well, there's a lot of other storage, mechanical storage, flywheels. There's there's a lot of things out there, pump storage. But uh, most people are thinking about batteries. And the price of batteries due to the, um, you know, we had that nice little mess in 2008 of the economy going down. And we had a little stimulus package. And one of the things that was identified was batteries. So in 2009, the price of a kilowatt hour of battery was $2,000. Uh, two years ago, it was $200. A factor of 10 it had come down. Uh, a lot of places were looking at that. In fact, uh, one of our friends, uh, Amory Lovins, Rocky Mountain Institute, drew a nice little horizontal line 
out and said, well, I don't think it's going to go down much further than $200. And uh, it was let out from um, the Chevy Volt was getting its battery pack at $149 a kilowatt hour from Panasonic. Or I'm sorry, LG Chem. And uh, they were making a profit at that. Uh, Tesla has come out with their gigawatt factory saying it's going to be under $100 a kilowatt hour. So that'll be a 20-fold uh, fall in price in less than 10 years. So that's an answer to, uh, you know, where you can sit there and say to the power company, I don't need you and I don't want you anymore. So what you're saying is if they're going to be unfair about what you're producing back to the grid, you could just cut yourself off the grid. And that may be where we're all headed, right, is to independence. It doesn't have to be a hard cut off the grid, <laughs> but but you can optimize the utility. time that you sell back. Weaning you yourself. Wean yourself off With slightly. batteries. Yeah. But it's, it's important that the, the business models that our utilities currently have are wrong uh, for what's changed. I mean, it's just a huge change. It's not a sea level change. As Cosmic Joe would say, it's a totally new planet uh, as far as energy that we're looking at. And there are people, when you buy a solar system, you're essentially doing the capitalization cost for the power company. And they owe you like they would owe any of their companies the same amount. Uh, I like to tell my students, uh, most payback periods, people go six years payback period, which is about average. I said, wouldn't it be nice to go to your power company and say, I'm going to pay you for the first six years, and for the next 24, my energy will be free? Because yeah. that's what you're getting with the solar system. And people just don't click on that. So it's really power to the people. If you're just joining us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. And our guests are Jack Martin and Eugene Beer. They are respectively from North Carolina and Columbus, Ohio. And we're talking about solar energy and the massive sea change, planet change, <laughs> underway with this industry. You know, one thing that Jack is especially an expert on is all things transportation and electrical in particular. In fact, part of the reason he came out here also is to meet with people at Moss Landing Marine Lab uh, this week uh, about... Uh, uh, modernizing their research vessel fleet to solar and electric and uh, so solar boats solar cars so jack can we can just turn him loose for the rest of the day here and uh, <laughs> spill out all kinds of really cool info but uh well let's talk about be. the race because everyone loves a race and then we'll talk about the moss landing boats and other things you're hoping to solarize um of course people love races and they mm -hmm. want to get in a car that doesn't make a bunch of noise especially a cool low car you know with solar panels all over it so too bad we don't have a picture you could uh, put up to the camera perhaps of your solar car but maybe you could give us a website that our interns will then post on Facebook so they can see perhaps a video of you racing your car. Tell <laughs> us what you built and what you raced. And well, we have several vehicles that we've raced, and some of them are solar and some of them are pure electric. Uh, but before I go there, I want to add a place where we have lots of batteries. Joe has an electric spark from Chevrolet. That's got a huge battery pack in it. You put battery energy into it, you can also take energy out. Now, they don't always have the equipment for that available yet, but that is going to be your portable energy storage, and your car tends to go where you go. So you so could plug your house into your car, right. and then when you car, your house is running low, you could mm. run off your car battery? Is that right. what you're saying? Mm -hmm. cool. And it could also happen where you go to work, you know, uh, when they could sit there and say, hey, we have, a, we have too much energy, air conditioning loads are really high, we're going to start pulling power off of your car with a simple algorithm on a computer saying, I'm not going to take everything you'll be able to get home today after work. But your employer might actually subsidize your vehicle because that energy storage will save them energy. The power company, of course, would not have to put expensive, you know, outside energy such as turbine energy uh, into the grid. So there's a lot of avenues there that need to be looked at. But the race car that you're talking about, uh, we've been having solar car races now for about 30 years. And uh, I started off as an official. I got to do the North American Solar Challenge, the General uh, Motors Solar Challenge, uh, the North American Solar Challenge, and the World Solar Challenge in Australia. And uh, it's amazing to see these, because these are primarily college students that build these cars. And I was fortunate enough to work with a team that came in third in the most recent one from Appalachian State. And uh, they had never had a car before, and they raced it, and they were very happily in third place. They are actually in first place for two days, which is unheard of for a team that has no experience. So, uh, and they built this car in less than two years. 
Wow, that's great news. Let's remind folks of the uh, email address and also that we're on Facebook Live. And if you have a question for our guest, you can just type it right into Facebook as well. And that's uh, Radio Planet Watch on Facebook, RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com if you'd like to email us. Real easy. Don't do it at the end of the show because sometimes that happens. We're going to take in just a moment and our engineer gets back a very short break. Uh, but meanwhile, we'll carry on. <laughs> He's taking a break. Um, He's back. Okay. So we're going to take a very short break and uh, thank everyone who supports us. And we'll be back with you with our guests, Jack Martin and Eugene Beer. Watch. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and this is Joe Jordan. We're here with Jack Martin and Eugene Beer, and we are talking solar energy today, both transportation, house, and utilities, how it's just uh, skyrocketing <laughs> in terms of popularity and going down in cost. We're kind of in a revolutionary time. And um, Eugene, you wanted to mention yeah. something about cars. Just a quick comment on what uh, Jack was talking about before the break. Um, in Japan right now, as we speak, the new Prius plug-in electric cars, the Prius Prime, does have an external plug on it or a, a jack. So you can run an extension cord from your car into your house. And um, you know, when your power goes out occasionally, you can power your house from your Prius. Also, the Priuses in Japan have as an option... A solar panel, a nice curved, um, wind, low wind resistant panel built into the, the top of the car. And that runs the heater blower, the, the air conditioning blower. So, so there's just not enough surface area to really run a car. Not really run at a car. Speed, right. And how did you race your solar cars if that was the case? Are, is, are they really wide and flat? They have, they have six square meters of solar <laughs> cells on them, which give you about 900 watts, which is less than a hairdryer. So your vehicle has to be extremely efficient, and it is, because these vehicles will cover easily 600 miles in one day. Wow. What's the top speed of that? I was in Australia, and we were in the outback, which is uh, in the uh, Northern Territory, which is, has no speed limit. <laughs> and there were two cars, both American. Uh, one was University of Missouri Rolla, and the other was a, um, an independent uh, person who'd come out of Carnegie Mellon. And they got to where they were trying to pass each other, and at 92 miles per hour, after an hour and a half of just increasing speeds, they finally passed each other. <laughs> and then they said, we've burned a lot of energy at these high, high speeds. Uh, the cars are made to run at typically 60 miles per hour. Uh, so they slowed down, but the problem was they have, it's one road across Australia's outback. And their supply truck at 70 miles an hour was two and a half hours behind them now. So if they'd had any problem, they would have had to wait two and a half hours to get replacement parts. So they outdrove and outsped um, the, the regular combustion truck, right. supply truck. That's a great story, but aren't these so wide to get all that solar energy? They have to be like driving a giant flat screen TV or like, you know, a movie uh, theater size. That's screen. true until uh, this year it's been reduced to four square meters, 
which is you, 40 square feet. 40 square feet. Okay, yeah. that's big. <laughs> so it's not as big as you think because a sheet of plywood is 32 square feet. So it's not much bigger than a sheet of plywood. And the reason they're doing that is they want to keep that low power uh, availability and to reduce the cost and to make it so more people be interested in it. So there are there are some plans to make solar-only cars, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, in fact, Joe's ha car is a solar-powered car because he has his solar power on his roof. Right. And so he gets energy and puts it into his car. And but I think we're talking about panels yes. now. And there, are there any plans for a commercial panel car like the one you... Well, Toyota has already announced that they're <coughs> going to be putting 25% efficient solar panels on their vehicles, which will give them approximately two or three miles a day, which doesn't sound very much, but for some people that's all you need. And by the way, if you only need that amount, there are other vehicles called light electric vehicles that are lighter than golf carts, you know, and some of them are even assisted by pedal power. In a mile, there's something called legs. Yeah. <laughs> so, bicycles. Uh, one mile, one right. mile. But uh, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. One of the things that happened with, with climate change, of course, is we had a huge storm called Sandy on the East Coast, which made a lot of believers uh, of people who were sitting there going, I, I can't believe this happened to us, right? Uh, if you had a Prius, you could go out and for $70 buy a 1,000-watt uh, uh, inverter, connect it to your 12-volt battery of your Prius. There is, and so it would access, because it has a DC-to-DC DC converter, it would access the main battery pack, and you could run your home on it. And we had a lot of people did that. Now, the Prius has a very tiny battery pack, so what happened is it would start the motor and recharge the batteries. And this is much better than most generators, because this is a mass-produced, industrial-grade motor that has air pollution controls on it. So it's much better than buying a small generator. Um, wait, not, wait, let me stop you. Yeah. So you're saying that my Prius right now, if I bought the right inverter and the power goes out, I can use it as a house generator? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would just go to where your battery is, your 12-volt <laughs> wow. battery, and connect the red to the positive part of the battery, then black to the negative, and plug it in. It would do that. If you were fortunate enough to have an electric vehicle, they have a 12-volt auxiliary battery with a DC-to-DC DC converter to access the big traction pack. So there were people who had Leafs, and they did the same thing and were able to run their house. Very, I mean, for less than $100, they could buy the inverter. And when that got down after a day or two, they would have enough power to tootle over to part of the community that had power, do their laundry, have something to eat, recharge their car, and then come back home and watch TV or do any of the number of things that they would be doing with power. So were they using gasoline to start the car to recharge the battery at all or no? No. Wow. No, a Leaf is pure electric. But the Prius people were. The Prius yeah. would just start up. Once the battery yeah. reached a certain set point, mm -hmm. it would start up and recharge itself. We had to do that in Columbus. We lost power for five days uh, a number of years ago. And I was able to do that with my non-hybrid car. But the disadvantage is the engine had to be running all the time because right. I wasn't smart enough to know to start it and stop it, you know, based on the 12-volt battery state of charge. Well, this sounds like stuff that, you know, in a hacker factory, everybody be sharing that information that no one would have thought of, even though it seems obvious now that you say it, that mm -hmm. cars can be giant generators and batteries. But who would have thought? Because we think of them as separate from our homes. But now you're talking an integrated system where we have cars that charge our houses, houses that charge our cars, solar panels that charge our cars. It's very cool. And here we are, as you can see, if you're watching our show, right next to the beach, and there's an ocean out there. How about, let's talk about electric boats for a bit here, Jack. Okay. Uh, what do you know about that? I, I, we were talking about ferries and how much of their energy demand solar could provide and so on. Well, there's, there's several companies out there that have been making electric motors for generations. And you were talking about the fishing motors, right? They can pull a little boat around very quietly. Uh, we've been upgrading those. Uh, the motors now are the size of what drives uh, diesel electric locomotives. They're 600 to 800 uh, equivalent horsepower. And you can put those in the drive line of ships. And in fact, uh, for over 75 years, we've had certain ships called submarines that are hybrids. They've used diesel motors to charge them up. They have batteries so that when they go underwater, there's no oxygen for the diesel motor. It would suffocate the crew. So they run on electric. We've had that technology for some time. All our trains are diesel electric. They have the power plant on top of the electric locomotive. So we've had these drives for some time. There's a big interest now in um, ferries because they have a set run and they have an open deck and you can cover that deck with solar. Uh, that works out really well. 
and then uh, that will give you just roughly about one-third of the power you need to operate the ferry, which some people go, oh, this is too sad. North Carolina has the second largest ferry system in, in the United States, yeah. and we already found out that more than half of them we could, we could put to uh, electric power. But they also have terminals where people park waiting for the ferry to come, and they have parking lots. So you cover that with solar mm -hmm. and a little bit more. Now you're matching it with solar. Plus, uh, on our coast, we have exceptionally good wind. So putting up wind turbines there would be very, very good. So that you, when the ferry comes in, you shuttle the vehicles off. You can actually shuttle a battery pack off, shuttle a new battery pack onto it. Make sure you have enough so you can go back and forth a couple of times so there's no emergency problem there. And then the cars come on, the ferry departs. The next ferry comes in, they do the same thing. One of the problems with a lot of ferries is they service very rural areas which have poor electric generation. And so when they uh, charge up, if they're just pure electric, they dim the entire community. So having a, uh, a solar generation, wind generation for the ferry, and then realizing we're going to produce more power than we need, and we can put it into the local grid, making it much more resilient, et cetera. So there are boats like that. And there have been solar-powered boats that have gone uh, across the oceans, around the world. Uh, it works. And we have spent all types of speed records with electric drives. And that's really the key is electric drive. Anything that can be powered could be powered by electric drive. How about airplanes? Most people would not want to be caught partway across the Pacific uh, in case their battery pack went down. But uh, is that in the works, too? It's, it's already here. There are several uh, aircraft that you can now order. Um, there are limited flying times, but uh, most of the people want those, want to go up. Like today, we had the paddle out. They would have been up there circling around, looking down. That's what you want to do, see what's going on. Um, 20 years ago, Paul McReady did a solar-powered flight across from London to Paris. Uh, and he did it because he didn't want his kids to get involved in the Iraqi war. Um, he, he said, you know, we're fighting it for oil. Everybody doesn't think planes can do this. Well, he took that and took the pilot out and developed what's called the Pathfinder and the Helios system, uh, which can fly anywhere in the world because they're just a big solar wing with electric motors on it. They hold the world's record. They're actually listed as spacecraft because they go really, really high, very rarefied atmosphere. And uh, what they do is they have very little storage, but they're so high that when we rotate into the darkness at night, they just give off their altitude as their energy storage, and then they come back on when the Earth rotates back into the sun. The other thing is that these things can go extremely fast. People, they're, they're launched at bicycle speed, but once they get to the altitude, there are extremely fast jet streams that they can get into. Now, they're flying to them at 20 miles an hour, but the jet stream may be pushing them at 600. You said there's no pilot. Are there passengers, people on there, or Not, is it all cargo? <laughs> it's, it's, it's all to uh, replace communication satellites, and the CIA's been using them for ages because at that altitude, they'll never be seen. They don't give much of a signature, so uh, they have replaced a lot of our spy satellites, and they're talking about using them for communication because when you design a communication satellite, which is solar-powered almost exclusively in space, uh, it takes you several years to design it, to build it, hopefully get it launched, get it up. And so by the time it's even launched, it's an old technology. And then you're going to be stuck with it for 20 years. Whereas with this, these things can go up for maybe 18 months and just circle round and round over a site. And uh, you can fly another one up, bring this one down, and replace the components with better components. Anyone that has a cell phone knows what I'm talking about. Every year, you know, yeah, you have to buy new a new and one. better one. You know. <laughs> if you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And Joe Jordan. And we're talking with Jack Martin and Eugene Beer about solar energy in every possible capacity. We were just talking about electric things, but electric things that have panels on them. And Eugene, did you want to chime in here about any of this? Uh, just a comment that was made earlier about utility-grade solar versus residential homeowner uh, solar. There is a, a, a great advantage to the homeowner having solar on the individual house because the excess solar uh, electricity that is generated goes back to the grid to be sure but basically in reality it's your neighbors nearby that are using up your excess energy it doesn't really go back to the generating station of your local utility which may be hundreds of miles away so you're saving the loss in the long transmission of electricity by putting it on your roof and having your neighbors use the excess. They're not aware of it. They're not, they don't realize they're using your electrons from the sun, but they are. 
And um, that's a more efficient way of actually having distributed energy, as it's called, on individual homes, uh, a more reliable source for the country than large generator stations that could be compromised, and a more efficient, uh, at some level, um, generation method. Well, I'm glad you brought up the grid again, because I did read a little bit of an intro of a book that sounded frightening, that the grid is not as robust, maybe, and safe as we all would like it to be, and that it's too centralized, could exactly. be hacked. Or, you know, there's all kinds of hackers getting really ambitious these days about our elections and now hacking into big things other than uh, just elections. So, Well, well Russia released a, a, a hacking virus into the Ukraine system and brought down the electric system in Ukraine. Yeah. And as they said, when you release these viruses, you don't always control them so that they can wind up in other places and, uh, and take them down. What Eugene was just talking about, uh, I mean, you've become the uh, kind of local neighborhood power plant uh, of what I call a community sky power plant, if you have a whole bunch of people that have home solar. One problem that needs to be dealt with here, though, that I've only recently become aware of, is that uh, the companies, uh, the local companies, uh, like our sponsor, Day One Solar, for instance, uh, they're having a really hard time uh, doing just residential. They, they're having to sort of make their main bread and butter, the way things are set up now anyway, doing large you know, commercial jobs and even utility scale jobs. It seems that economically that's, things are sort of rigged in, uh, against just mom and pop you know, individual home solar companies, uh, even though that's kind of the way we would like to see things go. And so maybe this is a role for government in uh, restructuring the market in a way that favors uh, the, the virtues of that. But I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, it's, it's very true that the utilities want to control the energy. That's what, they're, that's what they were created to do. And that's their business model. And unfortunately, the technology is outrunning their business model when you can, when it's very advantageous. I mean, when a, it's very cheap for us to do a huge solar farm because of just the mass of it. I mean, every time you double the size of something, it cuts the cost about 20 to 30 percent. That's just a good rule of thumb. But it's the utility company. And so it's not just that power system. It's the complete system. The generation is one part, but you have the transmission, the conditioning of it, and the delivery of it. And uh, that's, that's costly. Whereas if you have it on your house, that's all done. So even though it's, as one of my friends calls it, boutique power, it's your power and it doesn't travel that far. It's, you know, it's, we, we call it shadow power. In other words, you're under the shade of what's generating your own power. And we have so many rooftops. There's been countless studies to look at that and say, if we just use the rooftops, the flat rooftops, the, uh, the carports. Um, I mean, for Joe's little car, I, I would just dare say it's probably got 20 kilowatt hours of energy storage in it, you probably get four or five hours of sunlight on average a day. So you would need one-fourth of that, which is five kilowatts, and by today's efficient, his, it would just be enough solar to cover his carport for that one car. And that's if he wanted to use it for its maximum mileage of 80 miles or 100 miles a day. And he doesn't typically do that. So that excess power is available to your home, it's available to your neighbors, it's available to your communities. So what, what the big centralized power companies have, the utilities, is this huge access to capital. And individual homeowners don't always have even the money to put a carport that generates enough electricity for their car. How can we help uh, individual homeowners if they're phasing out rebates? Is there going to be some new clever finance system that's invented where you can somehow, when you buy a home, transfer that value to the next buyer or something that... Maybe you had some sort of loan that you could get back when you left. I don't know. I'm not a financial person. There's a system, system called PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy, where you pay off your solar loan on your monthly or your yearly property tax bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, this uh, came in, and then Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae nixed it for a while for, I don't know, political reasons or something, but it's back now. Mm -hmm. came back for commercial, and now it's back for residential. 
and it makes it so basically you are making money from day one. I mean, anymore, it's kind of a no-brainer. If you've got a decent roof that doesn't need to be replaced anytime soon and you've got good solar exposure, you should go look into getting solar right now because it makes a whole lot of sense economically for you. I mean, it's not like you have to plunk down $20,000 or $15,000. The system costs that, but there is innovative financing now that makes that you know, transparent to you, and your monthly bill goes down right away. And so who, where can people go to learn about that stuff? Because that's part of the equation of making the decision to go solar, not just because you want to and you think it's great for the planet and eventually you'll save money. It's the on-ramp of the initial outlay. That's, so a, that's a great question, and several of us here have taught at community colleges, and uh, I've taught both in the curriculum where we teach people how to do these, but also on the continuing ed, where I would have people come in and I would say, this is what you need to know. This is how much it's going to cost. And in many cases, we could sit there and we could figure out uh, what point are they going to take action? You know, what's the price point? So they would sit there and go, well, when it gets down to $2.12 per kilowatt, at, kilowatt installed, I'm buying it. And I tell them, you know, well, why don't you go ahead and start putting your money in a CD so it's growing and as the price comes and you cross that, you pull the trigger. The other one that a lot of people have done is they refinance their homes all the time for various reasons, to buy a car, et cetera, because the interest is deductible on your taxes. Um, I know a great deal of people that have sat there and figured out this is what I need so they can go out and talk with an installer intelligently, know that they're getting what they need pull the trigger and have it happen. And are real estate agents educated in solar so that when they're selling these homes, they know what their value is? Like, Not in here's Ohio. What, here's what your power bill is going to do. It's going to be zero. <laughs> Not in Ohio. We're, How we're about trying it? to educate the real estate people. Yeah. Yeah. So if yeah. you're listening, there might be a centralized place you could go to learn about how to market homes that are all solar. Yeah, yeah. but there are some real estate agents that do get it. Yeah. And you need to talk to them if you're selling or buying. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So um, any other thoughts on the grid before we move on to other parts of the solar world? And the com I want to go back to the conference, too, and what you expect to learn there, because we're just not looking at the end of the show now again. So, yeah, thoughts before we move on. Now, let's go back to the conference then, if you don't mind. Sure. Big, big deal, right? Everyone's coming from all over the world? Is mm -hmm. it? Yeah. So what do you think, besides what you said, which is the big buzz is trying to make sure net metering doesn't go away, what are the other big issues that advocates of solar are watching right now as they're looking at the United States and what we are so-called leaders well, just did or um, one, one thing that we didn't mention before is a whole lot of this conference is about the latest uh, you know science and technology M more the technology and engineering of everything from racking mm -hmm. to you know efficient uh, PVs you know photovoltaic uh, material uh, so you're gonna have a bunch of engineers talking to other engineers well one-third of it is called Simicon and Semicon is the making of chips. Semiconductor industry. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. And so a bunch uh, of people in a room talking about chips. It's, it's <laughs> a bunch of people in a humongous <laughs> space. Some people uh, will have a great time doing this, I'm oh, sure. Oh, they do. And well, they the, really get off on the it. The exhibit but, hall is three <laughs> floors now, and you can spend easily a whole day and only get halfway through the whole exhibit hall. I hate to be a skeptic, but <laughs> I, if I went in there, I'd say they, all these chips look the same to me. They look like chips. Well, I mean, the exhibit hall is not just chips. It's all <laughs> kinds of things. And all, all of the components, you know, inverters, well, solar thermal systems. Okay. You know. Not just chips, though. They're, one of the new um, research projects is to print solar cells now with a very high quality and precise printer. So this one company may be showing that technology off. I love that idea. Caroline, you have a question. You probably need to get your mic up there before you do. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I actually found a story and read it on here about uh, a new technology where they can have uh, solar, like, conducting paint and create, like, hydrogen energy from that. Do you guys know anything about that, or are you expecting to see that at the conference? I don't know if I'd see it in the conference, because that's definitely a research item. But the idea of having a conductivity in your paint application and having small... Uh, Texas Instruments, 25 years ago, had spherical little ball bearings that were co coated in silicon, and they were reactive to sunlight. And so the, the key was having to spread them out. They weren't terribly efficient was the major problem. But this is a, a game changer. We are talking about printing, painting, and thin films, which can you know be very flexible. 
which means it's real easy to put on a car. It's easy to put on a very easy boat. to put on a boat. It's easy to put on rail vehicles. I mean, just think how easy to be able to cover awnings. Uh, I had a student uh, said, "Doesn't matter what your house is. We'll just put a huge awning over it, like we do when we go camping. We put, you know, a cover over our tents just to keep it cooler, to shade them, etc." Uh, in the uh, in the South Pacific, amorphous cells, which are wonderful because you can stab them, shoot them, you can do all types of things to them. They still produce power because they go front to back. So as long as that's not interrupted, they generate power. They love them in the South Pacific because when a typhoon comes or bad weather, they can take it down. It's stretched out. Take it down, roll it up, put it somewhere safe. The storm comes by. It goes out. They lose two days, they unroll it, and they're off and going again. Whereas if it was a, one of the more typical solar that we see around here, it would be totally destroyed. So yeah. there's applications that we really need to look. And, you know, we, these things are so ubiquitous in space that we even forget about it. I mean, they're doing a wonderful rollout solar uh, just last month, and it got very little publicity. It was called the ROSA Project, and it was a rollout solar array. And uh, the, the key was it was just kind of an origami thing that would just unfold and cover up an enormous space after being taken off of uh, the Dragon capsule from uh, SpaceX. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another technology that's still in the research stage, I believe, is transparent solar cells. They can be embedded in plate glass windows. So many of these buildings today are all glass on the outside. They, they could be solid solar cells. Yeah, I'm still waiting. Uh, when I was our intern's age, we had calculators and watches that were solar-powered. I still have mine. The battery's been dead for decades, right? But if I go out with a little bit of sunlight, it will come on. I can do everything it will do. And if I want to hide it under the thing, it just disappears, bring it back out in the sunlight, it comes back on. I have a computer in front of me. It doesn't have that. It should. Cell phones. I mean, I remember we argued for ages saying, why don't they put a flashlight on a cell phone? It makes so much sense. It only took them 15 years to get it right, okay? And a, and a camera. And, and they're soon going to be putting them on, you know, they're soon going to have these little chips that will just fit on your, your solar. I already have one, but it's jury-rigged. I mean, I made it myself. I'm waiting for the solar hat. You know, so hey, well, they had this. Hey, you know, there's all this talk about the sun here, but I, I need about one minute or two to talk about the moon. We got to move quickly here to our uh, oddball stuff part of the show. Is that is that okay with everybody? Yeah, I and mean, I, I just want to thank our guests for um, sharing such good news. We talk a lot about problems, but we also talk a lot about planet-sized solutions. And what's so exciting is, as what you said at the beginning, which is it's reached critical mass now that it's just taking off, and it couldn't have happened at a more fortuitous time. Time. And um, Cade was wondering, is there anything that could stop it? It sounds like um, the answer probably is not. So it got its own momentum. Which is good news. Uh, we we just so. got to make sure that that good news gets out there and that we keep hammering away. Um, hey, well, so last week I realized after the show I should have wished everybody a happy Interdependence Day. But happy anyway, there, there, that's what happened this past week. Another thing that happened a week ago, but we're still basically there, is we are farthest from the sun for the whole year right now. We're at what's called aphelion, and we're actually a couple million miles farther from the sun than we are in January when we're closest to the sun. We can talk about why that is later, but anyway, we're getting closer to the sun starting right about now. And finally, the full moon. Notice its arc across the sky at night is the lowest arc for the year of the full moon. In the winter, the moon's arc is very high. We'll talk why that is later. So, uh, okay, we'll keep an eye on the sky, everybody. This is Joe Jordan. And, and I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Thank you for listening to Planet Watch for another week. Next week, we have more fun for you, big solutions to planet-sized problems. Special thanks to interns Tommy Martin, Cade Pastelnik, and Caroline King. And thanks to Eugene Beer from Columbus, Ohio, for running our program. Also, thanks to Jack Martin for being our guest today. We'll see you next time.